Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Hello, DealQuest listeners. Welcome to a best of episode of DealQuest. And on this best of, we are compiling a few of my prior interviews, clips of them relating to the mindset of a dealmaker. And, you know, there are a number of episodes where we've touched on this concept of what makes somebody a dealmaker, right? What's that different thinking that they have from what others, you know, may do? They may be otherwise similarly situated, but somebody is able to get deals done. And somebody isn't. Um, and, you know, we've talked about the sort of the positive and negatives of, uh, you know, of how you become a deal maker and the mindset. So we're going to have uh, three different clips here from three prior episodes. Definitely encourage you to listen to the full episode of each of these amazing guests because there's so much more wisdom uh, that they've given. But we've just pulled little clips that relate to various situations. In fact, some several disparate situations. Uh, relating to the conversation of mindset. Now, the first one coming up here is Jeff Dennis. Jeff was a guest on episode 83 of DealQuest. And really, we talk about the mindset uh, that it takes to raise capital and how you may have one mindset in the beginning when you really need the money. And, you know, without it, you wouldn't be able to scale or launch or really get, you know, things going in your um, uh, company and of course, in this, we're talking about the types of companies that really need capital to be able to do what they want to do. And then how sometimes that mindset changes significantly after the fact. And there's some revisionist history and uh, maybe some upset with the equity that's been given away. Um, but, you know, you wonder what would have happened if they really knew, you know, uh, maybe there's regret later, but they don't remember where they were. So in any case, um, really interesting conversation with Jeff Dennis. Check out this clip. The other thing I see a lot is angel investors who are resented down the road, mm. who, who got too good a deal, yes. and founders forget how desperate they were to find that first, you know, 250 or half a million dollars. And, you know, they, were, they would have given their, you know, firstborn child at the time, but, you know, they gave up 15 or 20%. And then, you know, all of a sudden it looks like they really made a bad deal. But, you know, with revisionist history, they forget where they came from and they, they end up in these kind of conflicts that I think are unnecessary. I mean, and that's, you know, the other thing is people, who, particularly raising capital as opposed to buying and selling. You know, I always say to my clients who are out raising capital, you will never own more of the business than you will today. Right. Okay. Like you're on a slippery slope here of dilution. And so, like, let's 
map this out. Let's look at the cap table and, okay, next round, 3 million for 15% and another round, 10 million for 40%. Like, you know, what are you going to be left with? Is this, are you going to be happy at the end of this? Is this really what you want to do? And let's rethink this or at least confirm that you're not just on this ego driven treadmill. I had a client whose dream it was in his vision. He did a vivid vision and in his vision, it was to be financed by Sequoia, you know, mm-hmm. the granddaddy of the VCs in Silicon Valley. Yep. And if you talk to this guy now, he did it. He made it. He got yep. it. 25 yep. million. Met his dream. It was a nightmare. <laughs> it just wasn't what he thought it was going to be. <laughs> and if you asked him today, he, he if he could have done it all over again, he wouldn't have taken the money. Um, yep. Now, he might not have been able to sell it for what he sold it for. And, sure. You know, like, it's easy to do it revisionist history and you know so who knows what he would have done but i just think you know, people should think these things through before they just get excited and horny about the opportunity and about the relationship and the ego and you know do it for the right reasons no question and and listen i you hear all these stories about especially in public companies or whatever or even in venture back private companies whether you know the founder got pushed out and, and listen sometimes there's some dishonesty and strategies going on there and i'm not just you know nickel and every dime but you know, a lot of times I look at it and I think about it. And, you know, at every point that founder made a decision to raise more capital, dilute themselves further, give up more board seats or other controls or whatever it is, right? Like nobody forced them to do that. that I, you know, they might have felt pressure to force to do that because of the market. And they, you know, that's the only, that's what they had to do, raise capital. But I believe we're all a choice, right? You know, it's always a series of choices a founder makes that puts them in that risk, that risk position. And if they don't understand it, that is always going to be a risk of doing that if they go that route then, you know, they're deluding themselves. I agree. The other phenomenon I'm seeing, and it's, I don't know, I don't want to call it a millennial thing, but I'm a little older than you are. When I started my business, I'm sure when you started your business, like you needed somewhere between zero and half a million dollars to turn the key on at your office, you know, to start a business, to buy inventory, furniture, employees, health, like you needed cap, capital, you needed money. Right. Why are Today, computers, you know, why are computers right. later like that? You know, as servers right. in your office and all that stuff. Right. File folders and yeah. filing cabinet, like all that stuff. And today you can run your business with your laptop. So people wrongly believe that you don't need capital to start a business. Yeah. And so they're grossly undercapitalized and they've got this concept and they're, you know, doing the seed round where they're giving up 20% for 500,000. Then they're going to do series A. And by the time they're done, they own nothing, and they're working for venture capital. Why? Because they were undercapitalized, and they, you know, did deals to push the business forward. And so I just think people have to be realistic when they start businesses that you have to find capital. Like, zero capital is not going to work. I mean, yes, once in a while there's great stories, but that's, you know, eventually you're going to have to come up with some capital. And you're going to have to pay a pound of flesh. Yeah. So the more you can do out of cash flow and earnings, the less you give up, the less partners you have, the less you know chance that you're going to be that CEO on the outside looking in. So listen, I hope you enjoyed that. You know, Jeff uh, has some great insights uh, being an entrepreneur in residence, and you know, uh, um, you know, an attorney himself up in Canada, but you know, certainly applies uh, to that sort of mindset set and raising capital and the ups and downs of that everywhere. Um, 
Next up, we have Daryl Johnson. Daryl L. Johnson was a guest on episode 82. So it was the one right before Jeff Dennis. I really encourage you to listen to this episode in full. Um, Daryl has a really interesting perspective on uh, how to put together deals and really around strategic alliances and business partnerships. And here's the key interesting factor is that, you know, we often talk about um, organic growth versus non-organic growth, you know, sales and marketing versus uh, deal-driven growth. And one of the things we've said generally is that, you know, they're not mutually exclusive and sometimes one leads to another. Well, um, I think Daryl really speaks to this well and gives a phenomenal example on how putting together a deal in a particular situation and having that mindset of not just being a salesperson, but being a deal maker actually then ends up helping organic sales. So check out this clip from Daryl Johnson. Some people have the mindset of a deal maker and, and some people mm. don't. And it's not, it's not something that you, you know, it's, it's something that can be learned. Some people are more natural. Yeah. At it, but it's something yeah. that be, right. And what you just said was it was a deal making mindset, right? You know, how can I get someone else to go, right? How can I call on my contacts? So what, you, what you're alluding to are partnership relationships, strategic alliances, joint venture, you know, whatever you call right. them, right? Yeah. Bring in various people to the table. So, yeah. uh, you know, why don't you give us a couple of examples of uh, some of those types of um, arrangements that you've put together uh, throughout your career? Man, there's been quite a few because when they're disguised as sales, they look like sales, right. you know, you know. But that's just part of the transaction. You know, there was a lot of activity happening before that. And the interesting thing is you keep getting sales. (laughs) So you did the deal one time to get the sales all the time. Right. But uh, ones that come to mind real quick are where we took a group of partners because we wanted to solve for a problem with uh, K-12. And especially even now with what's going on with COVID and e-learning all over the place, the program would it would be awesome to light it up again. There's an organization called E-Rate, which everybody could research. Find out quickly that the FCC aggregates money to the federal level, and then schools make petition against that money. And the people that actually are able to get the money to schools, the amount that they cover for the things they cover, which is the internet and phone and wireless and all kinds of things, depends on how many kids you have on free and reduced lunch. So mm-hmm. where you find that higher population of kids on free and reduced lunch is in your urban districts and in your rural districts. And one thing the United States has is a lot of urban districts and a lot of rural districts. Yes. You know? And so we would go visit some of these schools prior to putting together the solution. You know, while technology certainly was not, you know, they still have computer labs with five-year-old computers. Right. The fact the building was 80 to five degrees and you got little kids in here, it's like, how are they even paying attention when it's this hot? You know, it'd be better to divert you know, much of your technology budget, which is your largest part of your budget, save people and buildings, is going towards, you know, stuff that, you know, is catching you up to 1989 still. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we needed to design a program, and that's what we took it upon ourselves, is to put together a deal where we get all the right partners that solve for this thing in a way that makes it work the way we need it to work. And so the way we needed it to work is we needed a school to literally not be able to say no. So we came up with a way for the device to be a dollar. And we pulled in T-Mobile and we worked with their education leadership and got to a payback formula that they would invest in a go-to-market strategy. And they would do 10 on 24. So they would go in, they would give away 10 months to get 24. Mm. So if you can get the number right, you can do some things. And so we introduced the concept of leveraging the connectivity 
against the E-rate for, I'll say, all the school districts since this is recorded. But uh, it seemed like the urban and rural schools had the most interest in dollar devices that were brand new right. that also came with all of the software they needed to come with for the school. So the IT guy's not mad that they went, you know, to an e-learning model. All the parents are notified that they will be able to access support for these devices when they come home. The teachers actually got between 12 and 60 hours of professional development. So Polly, who's a math teacher, been doing it for 20 years on a whiteboard, now has to look at a bunch of kids with laptops and figure out how does she control her own laptop to control a bunch of kids to teach them math. And we made sure she felt comfortable doing that. That actually was the linchpin in getting the deal done. Partner with a training company to do that for us. But ultimately, we got that partnership stood up. The deal that we negotiated was we leveraged T-Mobile sales teams. So we had the national director's choice on what markets to go in, end up picking 13 markets, put together all the marketing, promo, training materials, portals, a bunch of documents, so that the T-Mobile sales rep would go to market with this value proposition. They could speak certainly to the connectivity, but they needed one of our team to speak to the actual offer. And together, we did some great things in that space, helped more than, that program helped more than 60,000 kids get technology. You know, that deal also spawned a lot of local deals that we had to negotiate for um, just contracting vehicles to get into the school. We had to renegotiate our banking arrangement because we went from selling like 1,400 devices a year to 25,000. They're all $400 each, you know. Hang on, I'm going to stop you for a moment because there's so much sure. in everything that you said and I want to help break okay. it down for the listeners, right? So okay. let me sort of contrast two alternative approaches because I often talk about in various episodes of this podcast that, you know, I, I say, hey, you know, you have organic growth, which is sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and then you have deal-driven growth, growth or inorganic growth. But this is a great example of where, and I always say the two are not mutually exclusive, and you actually did some of the deal-driven part of it to then help, you know, foster sales. And in theory, you could have gone into the schools if you were just coming from a sales, not a deal-maker mentality, and said, hey, you know, we have this solution, Right. And, you know, we want to sell it to you for X price. And you would have been highly unsuccessful from what I gather in this because, first of all, the schools have budget issues, right? Second yeah. of all, there's all these other, other needs that go around the product when they would say, okay, well, who do we use, you know, in terms of a provider? Well, you know, you can go speak to T-Mobile, you can speak to AT, whatever, like, and they got to figure it out on their own. No, you know, the training piece you brought in, right? The, you know, the yeah. local contract piece. So you did a series of deals to put together an offering, like you said, not just to try to sell a product that was a comprehensive solution, which helped you sell that, you know, that solution, that offering much better. And, you know, but what really fueled those sales was a series of deals you did and strategic partners, you know, whatever kind of, you know, it doesn't matter how they were legally structured, but let's call them key partnerships where big and small companies came together to produce a comprehensive offering that was much more attractive to the marketplace, right? Yes. Absolutely. And I think the part that probably, you know, if there's any lore in the industry, because we actually have some lore in the industry, because at that time, collectively, all of the carriers, T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon, and Sprint, filing for mobile data, schools filing for the grant to cover their mobile data, all four of them collectively were doing, at that time, this is 2012, 2013, maybe 14, 1500 a year amongst them all. And then you have T-Mobile the following year doing double the amount, 2,500. Then they come back with 10,000. Then they come back with like 35,000. Then they come back with almost 40. 
or 20 something thousand. And that's when we started getting calls like, Hey, what are you guys doing? What is this program? And the piece that, that probably made the fire go was the subsidy of the carrier commission being able to pay for most of the stuff. Right. So it isn't like we just made a whole bunch of money. We didn't make any money hardly. What we did is we made impact. They didn't think anybody would be crazy enough to do all that stuff and make, you know, 20, 30 bucks a rip when you could have made technically hundreds. But we wouldn't have had the value and the impact and some of the faces of the parents, you know, that feel, you know, get the impression that they think their child is now going to make it in life because they got one of these devices. Wow. I mean, that's some of the stuff you see. And, you, and when you see that, there's no, well, we're going to try to make money. I mean, we're just trying to make these families better off. And that's kind of how we did it. I thought Daryl brought a fascinating perspective there. And I love this concept of bringing together partners, strategic alliances, things like that, that then facilitate more sales on the organic side. Next, we move to Steve Hurst. Steve was a guest on episode 74 of DealQuest. He had a book that had just come out at that point. And definitely check out his episode. Steve's a guy I've known for decades. Amazing, amazing guy that, you know, represents uh, uh, TV personalities, especially in, in, in the sports uh, area. So a very, you know, interesting perspective on those types of deals in his episode. And in this clip, we talk about the difference between successful folks and not successful folks in making deals in getting them successfully on air, things like that. Even though they seemingly have otherwise, you know, equal um, uh, you know, it's apples to apples, so to speak. And, you know, two big areas that Steve talks about is one, just that self-reflection, that internal work that some people do and don't. And then he gets into his key acronym, which is the basis for his book, which is AWE, A-W-E. And I'm not going to preview it because I'll let Steve explain it in his own words in this clip. Check it out. The other person doesn't. And you would think that, okay, well, obviously I know why one person rises and another one doesn't. One person could be smarter than another person. They could be better educated. They could be a better, harder worker. They could be punctual and the other guy might not be. There are all these variables that could contribute to those factors, right? And be the determinant. But what I found, which was fascinating, is that that really wasn't the factor. I mean, at least in the cases that I saw, I was dealing with a talent pool of people that were smart, that were well-educated, that were showing up on time, that were doing, you know, largely all the right things that you would say to do if you're advising somebody. But even with all that, there was still this wide gulf between some people and others, right? And so what I have learned, and this is kind of the wisdom I'm sharing in the book, hopefully, is that there are just two factors that determine great success from what I would call mediocrity or middling. And again, middling for you, not necessarily middling for life, but if you're capable of being a 10 in life and you're stuck at a seven, that's middling, right? I don't care where you are. So the two factors were one, the first group of people really wanted to look within themselves to understand what were the internal factors that were holding them back. A lot of people would say, oh, I didn't get that job. I didn't get that promotion. My life's not going the way it would because this one was a jerk and this one didn't trust me and this one didn't do that. And that guy hired his boss's girlfriend's brother and that's why I didn't get that job. And there's always an external reason. And it's true. There are external reasons. You can't control those. The second guy would say, 
all that being said, what could I have done differently? Where could I have improved? How could I have been better? So that was a real interesting observation. And then secondly, again, going back to the idea that all these people are pretty good. You know, they're all, I, what I say in the book is you kind of try to take two relatively identical apples. So what was different about the second apple other than he or she was looking inside to get better? They were looking at their communication skills. And I talk about this in the book. It's a difference between public speaking and private speaking, a term that I talk about, is that most of our success in life, even broadcasters, by the way, is not just about how well you can speak in front of a group of 1,000 people or 10,000 people. It's how well can you speak in front of a group of one or two. And most of our communication is private speaking. So the second group of people, the success group, were ones that were really good at private speaking. They knew how to make people like them. They knew how to make people trust them. They knew how to win the room. They knew how to energize people and get people to go along with their ideas. And they were the magnets that everybody wanted to follow. And they took forms in different shapes and sizes, different voices, different energy levels, different personas. But they had what I call in the book, awe. And that's really what the book is trying to teach people is to have A-W-E. It's an acronym for A-Authority. Have a good voice, have good body language, have good presence. Don't speak with filler words. Be the person in the room that people respect as competent. It's not just enough to be substantively good at what you do. If you can't communicate that substance, then you don't have authority in the way that people are going to look at you. Yeah. The second piece was this warmth piece. It was this idea to make people trust you, to make people feel trusted, to make people feel connected to you. If you're in a relationship with someone on any level, and they don't feel a sense of kinship with you, of trust, then they're not going to want to be with you or follow you in the way that you otherwise could get them to. And the last piece is this energy piece. It's not just about communicating with your own energy, which is very important. It's about how do you energize others in the room. And notice that this works. So about four years ago, sorry if I'm just talking too long here. I'm just giving you the entire... No, no, please, please. I, 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 I want to hear it. It's great, great stuff. So... Four years ago, I realized, or at least this was my thesis, that what the coaching I've given and the observations I've made about people who are on air and have succeeded, why couldn't you reverse engineer that and teach this to people who are lawyers and dentists and doctors mm -hmm. in a really simple, easy to digest way so that the only thing you had to know about in terms of your interpersonal communication skills was this one three-letter acronym, AWE. That was it. So... That's what I did. I started, you know, created this consulting business and started working for a bank and for a law firm and a medical company. And the results were really rewarding. Frankly, I saw a lot of positive change. And that's in one of these meetings, um, I was speaking, ironically, at International Women's Day at Bank Leumi. And they said, a woman got up and said, hey, I love this message. Do you have a book I can buy? And I said, no, I don't. She said, well, that's a shame. You should write a book. And, and that's how I wrote a book. So I think Steve's acronym, AWE, is fascinating. A great way to look at things for anybody, not just in his industry. Um, so definitely check out um, uh, Steve's episode in full. And listen, like I said, check out all of them. And folks, listen, I think mindset is everything. Uh, anybody who knows me knows that I believe that the, you know, the, that the world's manifest from within. So it always starts with our own view of it, our relationship to things things like that. I think that's true in every aspect of life. I think the most successful people are able to master their mindset and certainly the most successful deal makers are as well. All right, folks. See you all next week.
Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.